Welcome again. If I've not met you, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and we're looking forward to spending some time in Scripture together today. If you'll take your Bible, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to read today. You're probably aware that um, prior to stepping into pastoral ministry in 1985, Leslie and I were musicians in a Christian band, and uh, we performed... We did, uh, by God's grace, simply by God's grace, we did four world tours. We went around the world four times and uh, performed in uh, well over a thousand different venues. Probably 50 to 60% of those dates, if you were those concerts, 200 of them, we, we, we sang or performed six nights a, a week. And um, so more than a thousand concerts. I'm hearing some music, Fred, of some sort. That's not you. Fred doesn't make music, right? No, okay, all right. He makes me forget it. Nonetheless, I can hear music of some sort. Somebody's got a phone going, all right? Heads up. Maybe you don't know it, but we can hear it. <laughs> can I just say, let me just, let, let, let's just address the, the elephant in the room. We all have phones. They all go off from time to time. It's cool, all right? Can I just say it's cool? It's the way in which we communicate these days, so let's get, let's just say we're okay with it all, all right? Um, so nonetheless, you go to 50 to, we, we did about, of those thousand dates or more, 50 to 60% of them were probably in churches, and it was all very informative and very life-shaping, and um, okay, somebody close by sat, sat tap and say, it's your phone, you know, it's wherever it is, you got it, all right, good job. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to call anybody out. We're not throw- <laughs> you know what I did the other day? I, I, my phone just goes off randomly from time to time these days. What's with that? It's like the spirit of music comes out of it. I'm going, Give me a break. Nonetheless, you get to know a lot of buildings in that regard, okay? And you get to know um, what's a good building, what's a bad building, and, and what's a good venue for a concert. And... Uh, you get to also, when you're doing that that many times, you also get to meet a lot of people, a thousand venues. You meet or more. You meet, and then all the years in pastoral work since then. You know, I, 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 not only do we learn what's a great building, we also learned um, what's a bad building. And you meet some great people. You also learn uh, some people are not so great, if you know what I mean. Um, we learned about Christians, the good the bad and the ugly, and even those who are downright mean and ugly, and um, most of the people you like, but some you don't like at all. I mean, who are we kidding? That's the, life, life presents all these incredible moments and these weird things that come along. And then we started, I started pastoral ministry in 1985, and Leslie stayed on the road, although we had kids and she'd be gone, you know, for a few nights at a time. And so we kept meeting more and more people, and uh, Along the way, you collect a lot of stories about those people, and um, you've probably heard some of the stories that I've got of these people who've had an impact. Like, there, there was a lady in the church we served in Tulsa. Her name was Bertha, and um, she, she was elderly. I mean, she was old before I got there. It's a good way to put it. And she just kept getting older and older. And I thought, this lady is now getting really, really old. And um, so she, um, she had to have some sort of surgery on her lower belly. And I don't know what the, I don't remember what the deal was, but in the process of having the surgery, the doctor, when he closed up, he, he took out her belly button. And um, 
I mean, he didn't, she didn't lose her belly button. It was just gone from that point on. And I went to visit her in the hospital, and she indicated, you know, this lovely lady, she says, you know, there's now only been two women in history who haven't had a belly button. There's me, and there is, think about it, who else a woman didn't, wouldn't have had a belly button? Eve, right? No mother, not, not born, but created out of Adam's rib. I mean, here's the perfect woman, the perfect body, um, no umbilical cord, no, button, no belly button. And she says, me and Eve now, we are like this. <laughs> and she says, me, when she said that, me and Eve, we're like this. Do you want to see? I didn't want to see. I didn't want to see, but before I could decline, she far too quickly whipped that gown up, and I'm going, oh, I don't want to see. She was elderly. I mean, she just didn't, she, I guess, what? I, I saw. <laughs> now, I'm a doctor. Yes, I have a doctoral degree, but not that kind of doctor. And uh, you know what I saw? She didn't look like Eve. She was one of the hundreds of people that I suppose thousands that I've met who are part of the body of Christ, part of the church universal, part of a church, in that case, part of our local congregation. And like you and me, many of us here today, she made up um, part of the body of Christ universal. Why am I telling you her story? Well, what we've been doing here in the second half of the summer, we say, there are a number of things that we'd like to bring to you from a pastoral perspective, but they don't fit into a common theme. So it's like, they're almost like one-ups each weekend, and we've put them all together. We're like, we want to take you on a trip. We're going to throw a bunch of stuff in the bag, and we've got so much stuff to carry, we're even going to include the kitchen sink. And today, I want to tell you something of great importance. I want to speak to you about why your story, why your story is important and needed in the life of this congregation, because your story, like Bertha's story, is incredibly important. I could tell you all sorts of stories. I, you know, I, I've, over the years, I've written some of these stories down. I have them in a file. I've got literally hundreds of stories of people who are here today who are like you, or people who were in the life of this church, or people I've met over the years. We're Christians. You know what, Christians? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, we are people full of foibles and struggles and sins. We are people with a list of errors that sometimes we go, man, I just made another mistake. I'm adding to my list of 1,001 or, you know, 10,001. We're also people full of victories and laughter and talents and abilities. We are people in the process develop, of development. Scripture puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. You are fellow citizens with God's people. You are members of his household. Built on, this, is, this is Paul the Apostle talking to you and me, if you're a follower of Jesus. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. And through him and in him, if you will, this whole building, this body of Christ business, this building of God is being joined together and it rises. And in him, you, are be, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I want you to notice that the language is present tense. We are being built. It's a process. It's a process that involves everyone working together. 
you do your job in order for me to do my job, and I do my job in order for you to do your job. It's the process of constructing, if you will, block upon block is the way in which the Greek, the, old, the original language puts it, component upon component. It's Jesus as the chief cornerstone, and from there the whole building is, present tense, being built. In other words, the project of the building's completion is only possible as each person does its work, does her, his or work, his or her work. Each individual Christian is part of the project. And it begs a the question then. Okay, if we all have this project of building, what should we be doing? What should each of us as individual Christians do? And how should that play out for us as a, as a body of Christ? I mean, we... we we are the people called First Christian Church. What's our responsibility? Well, I would like to give you a beginning list today of this, including the kitchen sink and this bag of things that our church needs to know this summer. Can I remind you of what God has called us to do and called us to be together? This is not an exhaustive list, but it's a beginning list of our responsibilities as a church and where you play into it. For example, we are people who worship and pray. And I know that you know this that one of our chief responsibilities is to worship God and to pray. There's a historical, uh, this is a, a historical viewpoint that theologians and churches have had for generations. It's best summed up perhaps in two ways. The um, Shorter Westminster Catechism puts it this way, that the chief end of humanity's responsibility is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's based on 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. In other words, in every aspect of life, I mean, down as far as basic is eating and drinking, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We are people of worship. We are also people of prayer. We pray at every moment and at every life event. Some of them are small. I had a chat with somebody today who has some big life experiences and big life stuff over the past week. And you go, man, I'm going to put that on my list this week to pray. In that regard, I'm also inviting you to prayer this week. As you know, we're in the midst of this pastoral transition, and the elders have requested that you join with them every third Wednesday of the month, month between now and December to pray about this process that the church is going through right now. And so this coming Wednesday at 6 a.m. at noon and at 6 p.m., choose whichever one you want. They're all the same. The services are going to be the same, about 30 minutes. Some of us who are gathering at noon will probably fast, and we are seeking God's best plans for the coming transition as I move into a new life stage and Pastor Brian becomes the new lead pastor. So yeah, I would say I'm aware that this prayer is for the church. I'm also aware that it's a prayer for me and I appreciate your willingness to include me in your prayers. You know, I've had people pray uh, for years have kept me in their prayers and I appreciate that That's in, regarding the role that I have here. Some of you heard, have heard me tell before of a person who prayed a lot for me. Um, his name was Ed. He passed away a number of years ago now, back in Tulsa. And uh, the best way to, say, to tell you about Ed is to indicate that Ed lived a very, very rough life um, in a lot of different ways. As a young boy, I, I'm thinking somewhere about 10 or 12 years of age as, as, the story, as he would told me the story. Um, I don't know what happened, but he damaged his foot on a Friday. And the family thought, oh, you'll need to go see the doctor. He went to the doctor, and uh, the doctor bound his foot up too tightly. And so that by the time he went back to the doctor on Monday, 
the foot had lost a lot of blood circulation, amongst other things. I, I don't know all the details, but in the, 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 the short of it all is, within a few weeks, gangrene set in, and he um, struggled with that foot for much of his life till he got a little bit past the age of 50 when he had it amputated. But in between that moment of that event and the amputation, that pain ruined his life to the point where he chose to self-medicate through alcohol. And he became an alcoholic. And um, his children were afraid of him. His wife was, I mean, he was, he was an unkind, horrible man, to be honest. And um, once his kids became adults, they shut him out of their lives. And after he had his leg amputated a little bit past 50, his wife died early, and then he got throat cancer, and he had to have a permanent tracheotomy installed. And so when I met him, well past 70, Ed was an old man, alone, and disabled. And he usually smelled badly. And he wasn't somebody that people wanted to be around. When I met him, he had just recently, within a few months prior, come to know Christ. He lived two blocks from the church that we served in Tulsa. And... Um, that church, we had a prayer meeting every Tuesday morning at 6 o'clock. Four people would come, me, an elder, an elder's son, and Ed. And Ed would come to that prayer meeting at 6 o'clock every Tuesday morning, and you could always hear him coming. He, he had a wooden leg. And um, whether it was pouring rain, whether it was snow, whether it was beating down hot, whatever the case, he always came to prayer 6 a.m. Tuesday mornings. We'd sit around the table in the kitchen in the downstairs fellowship hall. And uh, there'd be these prayers, of very lovely prayers, like if it was this week, we'd be praying for Haiti. We'd be praying about this, that, and the other. Ed was always quiet all the way through that 30 to 40-minute prayer gathering until somewhere towards the end, you'd know that this man who could not speak or pray in long, pious, religious language in any way, he would just simply say, God, I pray you would bless my pastor. <laughs> what do you do with that? Here's a man who had all these prostheses over the years, and he'd, he, he would try different ones, and he didn't like it, and as the new ones came along, he'd, he'd try it, and no, it's not going to work for me. And he'd always go back to his wooden leg. And over the years, that wooden leg deteriorated because you're sweating down that thigh, and he would strap it, in, strap it on, and the sweat would run down in there, and it would, the wood would deteriorate. And he would actually, from time to time, I'm working on my leg, Pastor, what you doing? He'd take a spoon and scoop out old rotten wood. And the, but then it would lose its weight, and he liked the weight, so he had a raincoat that he would cut up, and he would stuff an old raincoat down there, and you can imagine the odors that came from that. But this man, this man was a prayer warrior on behalf of Wayne Kent. What do Christians do? Christians pray. A healthy church prays. And I want to remind you that one of the marks of our congregation is that we are a church that typically prior to COVID, we became known as a congregation that sort of stepped out of our traditions in some ways and said, if you'd like prayer in a worship service, there'd be elders who would gather at the front of the church or pastors. And with COVID, we had to stop that. But after a discussion with the elders in recent weeks, we're going to step into that starting today. Now, it's hard with COVID. We've got to be careful how we do this. 
but at the end of the service for the coming weeks, we're going to try this as an experiment to see if we can get back into that rhythm a little bit. If you'd like to have prayer at the end of the service in either the East Auditorium or the West Auditorium, there'll be people at the front of the room who will be glad to pray with you. Now, for the sake of everyone's safety, as you step forward, we're going to ask you to put on a mask. We've got masks at the front of each room. And the people who are doing the praying are going to wear masks. And um, we're going to do our best to be safe in that regard. But COVID shouldn't stop us from praying. So we're going to step back into that and see how we can do that. If you're online with us today and you need to pray with, about something, reach out to your host. We'll be glad to help you out in that regard. So a healthy church worships and prays. A healthy church also receives. And when I say receive, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about receives converts. This is what happened a few weeks ago, uh, um, two weeks ago when we had baptisms. See, throughout Christian history, to one aspect or another, with, oh, there are lots of variations but for the most part, I, I guess you could say that baptism is considered the formal interest into the entrance, entrance into the church. And there's lots of legitimate debate about the best theological stance and the language regarding baptism. And Well, to prove to you that, that there's theological debate about it, here's, here's a term that, peop, that theologians use about baptism. They debate its, its um, salvific efficacy. Now you want to go, I have no idea what that means. So I want to point out there's lots of debate that goes beyond what we need to talk about for today. But in the long run, a healthy congregation receives converts. And these are people who choose to place their eternal destiny in the saving and redeeming work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. And for us here at First Christian Church, we expect that when people come to Christ, we're going to ask them to be baptized. And I know it's complicated for theologians, but on the other hand, may I say it's also quite simple that the biblical pattern of recognizing an inward conversion is an outward expression of baptism. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, your first step in Christian maturity is baptism. But once that happens, once we receive, if you will, the church's responsibilities also include developing Christians, bringing them to Christian maturity. You recall that the passage of Scripture we looked at a few minutes ago uh, says that a congregation is in a building process. That's because each individual Christian is in a process of development. We, we had a we had a couple in the life of our church here. Um, I mean, they were staples around here. They've passed away now. Um, they were sort of the, the kind of couple that w their marriage was like, they're connected at the hip type couple. Um, some of you will remember them. Don and Irma Bledsaw. Does that name ring a bell to some of you? Um, they had an experience that few of us will ever duplicate when it comes to this business of development and uh, how the church helped out. See, on July 19th, 1974, at 5 o'clock in the morning, an event occurred here in Decatur that, for, that forever put Decatur on the map in the national news. Does anybody know what that might have been? July 19th, 1974. A rail car explosion, right? Here's what happened. A huge rail car filled with gas, free rolling through the railroad, um, well, got rolling too quickly. It punctured. In, it, it, the, 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 it ran into an empty boxcar. And the coupling, as the, it was going too fast, the coupling sp sprung up in the air and punctured the skin of the gas rail car. Gas spread everywhere. Officials never did figure out what it caused the, the gas to be ignited, but some sort of spark, the thing blew up. Seven, sadly, seven workers were killed, tragically, at that moment on July 19, 1974, 5 o'clock in the morning. The Bledsaws have been in their house many times. Lived, I, I, think, was, I think, about probably half a block from where that occurred. And um, uh, you need to remember in 1974, that was at the height of the Cold War. 
And we were sort of expecting at any moment an atomic bomb. If you could think about that, that was the, the mentality of the day. And the blast, five o'clock in the morning, the Bledsaws were awake. They woke just as their house, the, seal, the roof of their house collapsed, and the ceiling fell in in their bedroom, landing right on the bed, and they were unable to move. And they lay there for five to six hours, holding hands, unable to move, expecting to die at any moment from radiation poisoning. Now, of course, that wasn't the case. They were eventually rescued. But that event sealed their love. And when Irma died, uh, when Don was 86 years of age, his grief was inconsolable at times. He was in full health. And it was our job as a congregation, those of us on staff, it was our responsibility at that point, how are we going to help this man develop? How are we going to help this man move through grief in the coming years to, so that he can get back to... I mean, you've got an elderly man who now has to develop a new life as a single fellow. So we did that for the next few years. We would make up jobs, literally at times, here in the building and say, Hey, Don, can you come by the building today and do this? Uh, Don, the, 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 the pews need to be vacuumed this week. Well, I don't see anything dust on them. Well, come and vacuum them anyways. Or... Or, hey, Don, all the, all the whiteboards in the building need to be cleaned. Well, they look all right to me. Yeah, but it would be really good if we could really get past that last bit that anybody can see. And he would, that was our responsibility, to develop him from a grieving elderly man to a man who could live in peace. So a healthy church is a church of worship and prayer. It's a church that receives. It's a church that develops. It's also a church that sends. And we say it this way around here that there's an expectation of the people of this congregation that we are the tangible touch of Jesus Christ in every setting we face. So that means this week, listen, this week, you ought to be Jesus' representative, whether it be at school or in the neighborhood, at the home, at your house, in the gym, in the park, in the, on the ball team, in your hobby club, hobby club, at the bank, in the tax collector's office, if you're in the mechanic's garage and you learn that your, that your oil change is not an oil change, but instead it's a $563 bill, in that moment, when you're online on a social media page, when you're in the church lobby, when you're sitting in a church pew or a church seat, when you're on the radio, who are you? We, the people of First Christian Church, are the tangible touch of Jesus Christ. We are sent by God into the world. That's locally, but in addition to our local responsibilities, we have a responsibility for the global, and I want to use this word, for the global proliferation. We are responsible for the global proliferation of Jesus' story and his work of redemption. And heads up, I want to chat with you specifically about that next week. But for today, though, finally, as part of our beginning list of a congregation's responsibility, let's chat briefly about one last issue of a church. Because what I'm wanting to make certain is that we, main, we, we acknowledge the culture that we have around here by listing these things and sort of emphasizing it, this is how we're going to keep it in place, what needs to be kept in place. And namely, that is, not only do we worship and pray and receive and develop and send, we also need to be a church that cares. It's what Christians do. You know, sometimes uh, churches and Christians are referred to as teams. Like, okay, so... There's an eternal game in play, and this is absolutely true. There's an eternal game in play. And we are to all work at our top peak condition. Um, because we know 
If we don't work in our top peak condition as a congregation, souls get lost. Souls are, lo- are, are held in the balance. But I would suggest, friends, that that metaphor is not always the best for us. Even though it's extremely true and appropriate at times, it's not always the best because, after all, there are some in the church, there are some in our congregation who are not in top peak condition. Instead, they are in desperate need of care. And sometimes they're in need of care for a season. Sometimes they're in need of care for a lifetime. Because sometimes not everybody is a class A athlete. Sometimes not everybody is a class A Christian. And in those settings, we are not a team in peak winning condition instead. We are a hospital providing care and providing holding and compassion. And sometimes it's around the clock and it never ends. Let me introduce you to a couple in this regard. This is a photo of Alan and Maya Rawlings, friends from Les- of Leslie Mine. Um, they're Welsh, have these lovely Welsh accents. They were raised, in, in, uh, raised in, in Wales, but they moved to the middle portion of England during their early married life, and they're now in their 80s. I first met Alan and Meyer in my first year on the road. I was a 19-year-old single man, and uh, I stayed in their home. It, was this, it went this way. We sang in their church. I was at the Elam Church in um, Tamworth, Tamworth, England, outside Birmingham, and it was a Sunday night. I had never met, less than I had not met prior to this, and um, if it was a Sunday night uh, in a church, that meant we were probably going to stay in that homes of those people that night, and we, Monday was always a day off because we'd, we'd, we'd sing Tuesday through Sunday. And um, so nonetheless, so Monday was a day off. So that meant I was going to spend two nights at the Meyer's house, at the Rawlings house, with Meyer putting on, you can't believe the stuff. I mean, she, she, they just faded me. And um, we became very good friends, and they would often then show up at you know, concerts we had around the country. And um, we became very good friends. Years later, after Leslie and I were married and we were gone to college and we were back on the road again, we stayed with them many, many times. And here's one reason why we like to stay with them, apart from their hospitality. Um, in the 70s and 80s, uh, most of the homes, or many of the homes in Great Britain, didn't have central heating. And it's a cold, damp nation right in the winter. And so there would be times, I mean, I recall one time when my, our shampoo froze in the bedroom overnight. It's cold. It's cold in the bedrooms. Now, they heat a few in the, the, the main rooms, right? But, but Alan uh, spent his career as a coal miner, and one of the employee benefits of a coal miner was that you got free coal. So they had a boiler in the house, and they had electric uh, hot water heat, and you'd go in the, that bedroom oh, in the middle of winter, doing this all the day, every day, and then you go in there, be in that bedroom, oh, put your hand up against that radiator, it was glorious. Leslie got introduced to them. We stayed with them. and We'd been married for a number of years by then. And One night in the middle of a concert, and I want, I want to be tender and sensitive to this, and Leslie and I have chatted. She knows I was going to bring this up. In the middle of a concert, Leslie had a very significant pain down in here. It was excruciating, overwhelming. She went off stage after the concert and passed something that was far more than normal. And overnight, I realized, I need some help here with my young wife. We're now early to mid-20s, and um, she appeared beyond exhaustion. I didn't know what to do. 
I mean, what does a 24-year-old know what to do in that sort of setting, right? A guy. I called Meyer. I said, Meyer, I don't know what's going on. And um, Meyer says, send her to us. Send her here. So I um, put her on a train. I was the keyboard player, the leader of the band. I couldn't go, couldn't be with her. I remember standing on the platform of the train and knowing she's got a three or four hour journey and no cell phones in those days. She got to Tamworth and Meyer's statement to her as she got off the train standing there on the platform, Leslie, you look very, very ill. We're putting you to bed. They had their doctor come for the next, every day for the next 10 days to that bedroom. He suggested probably it was a miscarriage, and I, we understand all the ramifications of that. And the time, my day off was coming up soon, and so I showed up about a week later and stayed in bed. Then we could figure out how the group could do it without me. And uh, the Rawlings, they nursed us back to health, both emotional and physical health. Why would a British couple do that for a couple of kids from across the pond? More than 20 years our senior. Why? Why would they bring us into their home and show such love and affection and support and attention? Because, friends, beyond the prayer and the worship, beyond the receiving, beyond the sending and the developing, the church, capital C, the Rawlings in our case, and in the case of this congregation, First Christian Church, we are called to care. Let's pray.